So we finish up our sermon series on Hope Starts Today. We've been walking through this journey together. I've been sharing a little bit about uh, Max Lucado's book and pulling out little excerpts and quotes from his book. He did a wonderful job about that and just once again focusing on hope. And so then we had my friend Don Piper last week. He did a fantastic job of just once again reiterating the promise of Jesus Christ and the hope we find in him. So um, listen, uh, so we're going to finish this up this week. And so I uh, want to read a, a piece of scripture. It comes from 1 John and this is known as um, well, part of First John uh, about the love chapter, um, God is love. So let me just read a, a little excerpt from this, um, from First John, uh, the fourth chapter, beginning with the 13th verse. Hear these words. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because, well, he has given us of his spirit. And, and we have seen and do testify that the father has sent his son as the savior of the world. God abides in those who confess that Jesus is the Son of God, and they abide in God. So we have known and believed the Lord that God has for us. God is love, and those who abide in love abide in God, and God abides in them. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness on the day of judgment because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear for fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not reached perfection in love. We love because he first loved us. Those who say, I love God and hate their brother and sister are just, well, they're just liars. For those who do not have a, a love, a brother, or a sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. The commandment we have from him is this. Those who love God must love their brothers and sisters also. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. And amen. So, um, you know, we had a fabulous weekend last weekend. We're so grateful for, uh, you know, my friend Don Piper coming. And I got uh, actually several wonderful emails back. It's always good, a wonderful email instead of like a Monday morning email. This one was great. And, um, and, and I, I thought it was rather striking. So let me just share this with you. Because I got several phone calls. People just share with me. Pastor Hill, thank you so much for um, Don Piper's testimony. So this is what they said. I, I want to thank you, Pastor Hill, for bringing Don Piper this, uh, this past weekend. It was an incredible blessing hearing his testimony and his message of hope. I, I read his book more than a few times, getting encouragement knowing that heaven is real. I truly believe God is using him to encourage and remind us as believers that God is expecting us. I like that. I was also, well, I was very challenged by his question. Who will be there because of me? Thank you. I really like that. Because it made me start reflecting upon, well, there's several things going on here. First of all, the first, I'm going to give you three words. The first word that came to my mind was the word challenging. I mean, Don did challenge us. And, and once again, this person, uh, my friend Ron, uh, it said it challenged him to think about that. Who, who will be there because of me? Who's going to get there? I mean, what was part of Don's testimony? Uh, how we can influence people. How can we get people from here to there? And how we live our lives, how we, how we share the good news, how we give our testimonies and sharing God's love with other people. So we have that. So the first word's challenging. The second word, and it came from Don Piper himself, because I had a chance to have lunch with him one day and we were kind of debriefing after everything that had happened. And um, 
I said, well, how do you think it went? He says, you know, Harold, I just felt like your people were coming expecting. There's another word. Um, matter of fact, my friend Ron, he also highlighted that word. God is expecting us. And, and Don shared with me, he says he felt like that you all came expecting. Expecting revival, expecting to hear the good news, expecting hope. Um, so that's the second word, expecting. And the third word that I came up with um, was the word assuring. I, I think that's a, that's a key word. The, the idea that we have assurance that, that heaven is real and that Don's testimony is real. And, he, and out of that testimony, we have a deeper sense of assurance that there is a place, just as we read in the scriptures, that Christ has prepared a place for us. He's got a heavenly mansion. It's got many rooms. He's got one with your name on it. And so I, I like that, uh, the idea of challenging, expecting, assuring. I'll never forget the first time I heard Don's testimony about 15 years ago. And I, when, I, when, I was, when he was done, I, I literally went and I walked down the aisle and I knelt down behind him and I touched his leg and I just said, thank you so much. Because I, I was thinking, not just because of my church, but I was thinking him for me. Because after I heard the story, I had this deeper sense of assurance. So we have these words, challenging, expecting, assuring. Uh, and so um, I started uh, thinking about this this week. Also, I, well, I shared with you a few weeks ago, my, my daughter, Olivia, bless her heart, she's an artist in our family. And so um, uh, she painted this painting for me and it was my favorite Christmas present. I had sent her a picture and it's a, of my four of my sons uh, actually going and paint lick, um, going from Paint Lick Creek or Crick, as we say in Paint Lick, uh, Paint Lake, Kentucky, and, they were, and, and so they were going from the creek, from being down there fishing and playing with the crawdads, and they are walking up towards the house my aunt and uncle lived in, um, and I just have such great memories, and so that just, it just warmed my heart that she took the time and painted that painting for me. I appreciated that. Uh, and the, my second, so that was my number one favorite Christmas gift. My second favorite Christmas gift this year, matter of fact, I got a picture of it. My friend Bonnie, who's playing the piano for us this morning, gave it to me. And here it is. They're socks. They're John Wesley holy socks. And, they're, and they're, my feet have been fa- fa- actually strangely warm, uh, and which I had no idea when I was writing this sermon a week and a half ago that it would be 25 degrees this morning when I came to church. See, so it all worked out. And so that quote about my feet strangely warm, it really is a takeoff, as Marilyn mentioned, about John Wesley having his heart strangely warm. I mean, Wesley, too, I think that he came, there's a sense of his ministry and his own life about those three key words, the idea of challenging people to be followers of Jesus Christ that played out in his ministry, the idea that people came to hear him speak by the thousands expecting to hear the good news and the promise of everlasting life and salvation and that heaven is real. And the idea of a sense of a blessed assurance that they, people could be assured that they had a, you know, that Christ is the way. And so, you know what, it's interesting about that is that um, it wasn't always that way with Wesley. Matter of fact, he, he did his own struggle. Matter of fact, I, I can tell you, um, you know, I think that we had something in mind, uh, common, because um, it was a journey. And I think that we've all been on this journey together in some way. Um, Wesley would define this called sanctification, that we're on this journey together, moving towards perfection. And, and so, um, as Wesley would put it, you know, it's interesting. He was actually ordained in 1728. His daddy was a preacher. Um, just like my daddy was a preacher. 
Um, somebody in my family has been preaching for the last hundred years. And so uh, Samuel, his dad was a preacher. And so he followed his father's footsteps. And he became an ordained Anglican priest. 1728. And what's interesting is that around 1735, he was actually invited to come to America. He only made one trip. And he went to Savannah, Georgia. Matter of fact, here's a picture of uh, Mr. Wesley. This is a, a statue that's in Savannah um, there. And so he had come in 1735. And the reason why he came, he was invited. Um, he was trying to convert the Indians, the Native Americans here. And so he tried to preach to them. And, and what happened was he bombed miserably. Uh, he was a, it was a, a total disaster. That didn't work. Matter of fact, he, when he got here, um, he had actually kind of fallen in love. Um, it took him four months to get here. Um, on a boat. Uh, let me tell you something. This is not the carnival cruise ship. All right. Uh, and, and, and the way over. Um, he, he thought. That he was going to die. Because the main mass on the ship. Broke. In the middle of a storm. And what was very interesting is. When he thought he was going to about to die. He, there was um, a group of Moravian Christians. Over having their own holy, holy huddle. And they were singing. Now I want you to get this. Use your imagination. Okay. Because um, they're over there singing. Praising God. Singing hymns. And I could just imagine John Wesley. He was anguishing. And he was bailing water. I could just see him doing that. And, and so. Because he was thought he was going to die that night. And what was very interesting about that story is that it all kind of played out. Wesley realized that those Moravian Christians who were singing hymns, they had something that he didn't have. They, they had what we called a, a, an inner peace, an inner strength. And Wesley was struggling with an inner weakness. They had something that he was deficient in. I, I, I looked up this last week and I thought it was interesting because I, I tried to do my due diligence on sermon preparation. And, and I thought, well, what would be interesting to go back to the early 1700s and find out what kind of hymns they were singing, the Moravians? So I found this one, early 1700s. Now, I don't know if they were singing this one, but a, probably a hymn like this one. This is, this is called The Savior's Blood. The Savior's Blood and Righteousness, My Beauty Is My Glorious Dress. Thus well arrayed, I need no fear, when in his presence I appear. What a beautiful hymn. So they were singing stuff like this. They were singing, Wesley is bailing, because he thought he was going to die. They had inner strength, he had inner weakness. God was messing with them. I mean, by the way, he was an Anglican priest. He was ordained in 1728. This is seven years later. So he gets to America. As I mentioned, he falls in love. Kind of uh, this romance begins with Miss Sophia Hopke. And so he gets to America and they're dating and courting or whatever. And evidently he decides he gets cold feet and he, he drops her. Well, she gets, she marries on the rebound. And everything, well, he was a little distraught about that. Um, but everything was, well, seemed to be okay until Sophia and... Um, her new husband show up for Holy Communion and he refused to give it to him. Now you got a problem. Because uh, all of a sudden they were suing John for defamation of character. Uh, and, uh, so uh, uh, this is a train wreck and he was actually in court. 
Um, and so he finally, because he is such a train wreck, because his love life has fallen apart, and then she marries somebody else, and he gets in hot water and ends up in core. He, he doesn't, he can't, his ministry is not effective. He finally just, he literally bails and goes back to England. Now, here's an interesting thought about this. You know, here is the founder of the United Methodist Church, and he flees from a court date, which means, you know what? I mean, I never thought this, but there's actually, you know, he, uh, the idea of there's, uh, of, that he was a, almost a convicted co- a felon. The founder of the Methodist Church. Well, when he went back to England, they couldn't find him. So, um, so, so Wesley comes back and he, and he gets on a boat in December of 1737 uh, and goes back to, um, to England. Uh, a mess. Matter of fact, he was such a mess, he was about to quit the ministry. Uh, I understand that. And, and so um, he, he has a, a friend who's a Moravian pastor. And, the, and um, his name was Peter Bowler. And, and this is what he, he confides in Peter and says, hey, Peter, you know, I, I, I'm miserable I don't know what to do with my life. I, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm terrible. I, I'm a terrible pastor. And I, I'm about to quit. And then Peter Bowler says this to John Wesley. John, preach faith until you have it. And then because you have it, you will preach faith. So um, about a month or so later, Wesley goes... To, um, well, he wakes up on May 24th, 1738. Hold on to that date. This is 10 years between being an Anglican, ordained as an Anglican priest, goes through all this turmoil, and on May 24th, 1738, he wakes up at 5 o'clock in the morning or 4 o'clock in the morning because that's how he did it. And he opened up his Bible, and this is what he read that morning. Everything that goes into a life of pleasing God has been miraculously given to us by getting to know him. Personally and intimately, the one who invited us to God. The best invitation we ever received! Exclamation point. We were also given absolutely terrific promises to pass on to you. Your tickets to participation in the life of God after you turned your back on a world of corruption and lust. He starts his day with that text. Now, later on in the evening, he evidently gets invitation. On May 24, 1738. Starts his day with that text. And he ends up going to a Moravian chapel. And they, when he goes to this Bible study, someone gets up and begins reading Martin Luther's preface to the book of Romans. Now, there's a thought. I don't know if you realize this, but Martin Luther, he even had his, his problems in life. I mean, you know, once again, one of the most profound things that was shared with me in seminary is I was sunshiny and all happy and good lucky. I was kind of a surfer dude. I came from Florida. And one of my professors said to me, you know, Harold, I want you to understand something about life and about theology. He says, you know, you can't get to Easter without going through Good Friday first. So Wesley is anguishing. I mean, he goes back to that whole thing on the boat. He's searching. He, he wants assurance. 
The Moravians have inner peace, but he has inner anguish. Uh, Martin Luther struggled with the same thing. I don't know if you know anything about Martin Luther, but by the way, we wouldn't be here today with it, without those two, without Martin Luther and John Wesley. Martin Luther, you know, he led the whole Reformation movement. He broke away from the church, uh, from the Catholic Church, began the Protestant Church. But you know how? How did we get? Th- how did we get here? Well, let me tell you something. Martin Luther struggled with depression, anxiety. He was obsessive. Matter of fact, his dad wanted him to be um, a lawyer. He says, "Dad, I don't want to be a lawyer." He says, "I'm going to go be a monk." He was a monk. I mean, and, and for the, about five years, he, he lived in a convent. And, and listen, he even said, he conceded. He says, nobody was a better monk than me. I mean, I had the whole monk thing down, basically. I mean, he literally would torment himself. He would, he would fast for days. So he almost died in order to get right with God because he always felt so unworthy. He felt like he never could measure up. And he always felt like the sin was continued just to contaminate his soul. And he anguished and he tormented himself for years and years and years. That went on. Until one day, this amazing thing happened to uh, uh, Martin Luther. He picked up the Bible and began reading it. Specifically the book of Romans and Galatians. And he finally had his aha moment. He says, you know what? I realize that I can't do this on my own. It's not what I do, but it's what's been done for me. There's a thought. That Jesus Christ died for my sins. And I can't do anything for to achieve that, but it's what Christ has given to me. So what Paul had written in the book of Romans and what Paul had written in the book of Galatians, all of a sudden, man, it hit him right between the eyes and he finally got it. Because he picked up the Bible and began reading it. So Wesley goes to a Moravian church on 7 May of 24th, 1738. It's been 10 years. Then he actually became an Anglican priest. In the midst of all that, someone gets up and reads something from Martin Luther, who too has been anguishing, who finally gets it. And this is what actually, what was actually read that was very interesting that um, what happened to Wesley that, that night. I say night because he started in the morning with reading that scripture, but it was about a quarter till nine in the evening. He goes back and writes in his journal, you know, about a quarter before nine, while, I, well, he, while he, somebody who was describing the change with God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. And then he goes on and says, I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation and assur- oh, admit, there's that word, an assurance was given me. That he had taken away my sins, yes, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. Glory, hallelujah. You know what that means to me? And maybe we all can relate to this in some form or fashion. See, all of a sudden, uh, uh, Martin Luther went through it. Uh, John Wesley went through it. I've even gone through it. Maybe you've gone through it. It's the idea that all of a sudden, you know, you, you have maybe read the Bible, you're raised in the church, and you have the head knowledge, but it's all of a sudden, what goes in your head, all of a sudden, it sinks down and permeates into depth of your soul and your heart. Can I get amen on that? There's a difference between having all the head knowledge and, and allowing, allowing the depth of Christ's love 
that Christ first loved us. Wow. And allow that to seep into our hearts and that we can be redeemed and we can be saved. And it's not so much what we are doing, but it's what's been done for us. Thanks be to God. Um, and, and so what's fear, I love this quote from Lakato. He says, you know what? What starts in the head continues in the heart. Facts evolve into faith. I wrote this down. This is from your pastor this week. Faith is more than a feeling. True faith is when the Father's love is formed in your heart. It's not just about what's in your head. It's about what seeps down your heart. So Wesley finally got it. It only took him 10 years. But he finally got it. Um, it took multiple years for Martin Luther to get it. But he got it. The question is for us to think today is, do you got it? You know what's interesting? Um, there's this great story. Um, it, it's in the book of Acts. It's one of those kind of obscure stories. You know, maybe you've read it. Maybe you haven't. It's in the 24th chapter. It, it's that place where... Paul is imprisoned, and the governor, who's a Roman governor, his name is Felix, and um, Paul was always in prison. You know, every time he showed up, he would open up his mouth, and the next thing you know, he's in prison. And so there he is, and what was interesting is that Felix seemed to be very intrigued by the gospel message of hope and salvation in Jesus Christ. So Paul, he continued to call for Paul. For two years to come and talk to him. Now, this is how the whole thing plays out, okay? Ready? Uh, Felix waffled. He knew far more about the way, the Christian way, than he let on and, and could have settled the case uh, then and there. This is the case between him and Paul. But uncertain of, the, of his best motive politically, he played for time. When the captain, Lysias, comes down, I'll decide your case, he told Paul. He gave orders to the centurion to keep Paul in custody, but to, to more or less give him the run of the place and not prevent his friends from helping him. A few days later, Felix and his wife, Drusilla, who was also, well, she was Jewish, sent for Paul and listened to him talk about a life of believing in Jesus Christ. As Paul continued to insist on right relations with God and his people about a life of moral discipline and, and, and the coming of judgment, Felix felt things getting a little too close for comfort and he dismissed him. That's enough for today, he told Paul. I'll call you back when it's convenient. At the same time, he was secretly hoping that Paul would offer him well, a substantial bribe. These conversations were repeated frequently. After two years, get this, two years this went on, of this, Felix was replaced by Festus, still playing up to the Jews. He ignored justice and Felix left Paul in prison. Now what's that story all about? I'll tell you exactly what it's about. It has everything to do with, I mean, this is Paul. This is the greatest Christian that's ever been. This is the guy who wrote like two-thirds of the New Testament. He is sitting there and teaching Felix about the love of Jesus Christ. I mean, this is like, this is like someone who wants to learn how to play basketball and your mentor is, is Michael Jordan. 
This is like if you want to know how to coach football, your mentor is John Madden. This is like if you want to know how to paint something, your artist uh, mentor is Leonardo da Vinci. This is what this is. Paul is telling Felix about the good news and the love of Jesus Christ for two years. I mean, this is, here's the point. Felix had all the head knowledge. I mean, he learned from the best. But he never allowed it to permeate into his heart. There is a difference. He never got the assurance. He literally missed the boat. I love the story, um, the idea of assurance. You know, that's one of our key words today, right? You know, challenging, expecting, assuring. Don't we all want a sense of assurance? So, there's a story about Fanny Crosby. You know who Fanny Crosby is? She was one of the most famous Methodist hymns ever written. It's my favorite. It's, I'd say it's one of my top. My, my, probably number one is Victory in Jesus. Uh, uh, um, my friend John was playing that just a few minutes ago. My second favorite is Blessed Assurance. Fanny wrote that. Matter of fact, Fanny was, um, bless her heart, uh, was blind after six weeks old. Blind. But what's interesting is that she went on and wrote 8,000 hymns. Wow. And one of the most famous hymns that she wrote is Blessed Assurance. Once upon a time, one of her friends, Phoebe, was a composer. She came and started playing something. And she says, hey, Fanny, what does this tune say to you? And then immediately on the spot, Fanny says, I take exactly what it means to me. Blessed Assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. And right there, evidently on the spot, evidently over the next, I don't know, right there in the next couple of days, they wrote one of the greatest hymns ever written. She just started noodling this little tune. I, you know what? I thought, you know, um, I, I love that hymn. Matter of fact, um, I, I always had, one of my favorites is growing up. Matter of fact, I even know it's on page 369. You can check me. It's in the United Methodist Hymnal. And, and so, but I, what I love about that is, I never thought about the theology in it. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. I mean, the, the idea that here we are and we're living through this life and, and yet what we're experiencing here in God's love is just a mere foretaste of what we can look forward to someday. And we can rest assured that God's love is real. You know what's interesting is that Martin Luther and, and Wesley, I think they both, you know, they both, I think they were both tormented. They, were, they struggled. And they were doers. I mean, they, 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 there's something about like what we call this works righteous. How much do I need to do? What do I need to do? What do I need to do? And they were focused on, I have to be pious enough or holy enough and, and religious enough and read my Bible enough and pray enough. I mean, you know, Luther did this for years, years, and years, tormented himself. Wesley did it himself. He did it his own way. And so there is a difference between what we call doing and then what's been done. Uh, and so I, I started thinking about this last weekend. And I like what, there's a piece of scripture that uh, Lakato highlighted in his book. He, he talks about doing matters to God, but doing follows, follows receiving. The things, this is, Phil, uh, this is Paul in Philippians. 
The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, talking about Paul, these things do. And the God of peace will be with you. Let me say that again. The things which you have learned and received and heard and saw in me, these things do. And that God of peace will be in you. So listen, here's, he says, don't miss the detail. You got to learn and then you receive and then you do. You got to learn and you receive and you do. Can you repeat that with me? You learn and then you receive and then you do. Okay. So I, I like this quote, facts enter your head and descend into your heart as faith and exit in your hands as energy of God's love. Let me say that again. This is Lakato. Facts enter your head, descend into your heart as faith and you exit in your hands as God's love and energy. What do you do with your you? It's Lakato put it. What are we doing with your you? Each person is given something to do that shows who God is. First Corinthians. Uh, we were all knit together, according to the psalmist, into our mother's womb. God knows us intimately. And every single one of us in this room has been given something to do in order to honor God and his kingdom. That's why we got 45 different things you can pick from. We can all do something. And every one of us is unique. I was talking to my son, Luke, yesterday. He called me in the middle of the afternoon. He lives in Anhurst, Massachusetts. It was snowing. He, had, he was out walking in the snow. I mean, this is a surfer kid. Now he lives in Massachusetts. He's got... He's seen more snow than he'd ever dreamt that he ever sees so much snow. I mean, snow's everywhere. So he and I are FaceTiming. He's walking through the snow. He was like a kid in the candy shop. He was all excited about the snow. Now listen, after about an hour of that, that would wear off and I'd be wanting to move back to Florida. But he says, I'm happy here, Dad. I said, that's great, Luke. More power to you, man. And so what's interesting is, as I'm looking at all that snow, matter if I got a picture of this, here's some snowflakes. Do you realize that every single snowflake has its own unique identity. Every one of them. Billions and billions and billions of snowflakes. And you know what? It's interesting that as the psalmist puts it and as the apostle Paul puts it, it's that every one of us is unique. We've all been knit together in our mother's womb and every single one of us in this room has our own unique ability. I, I, I like the way Paul put it. He says, you know, if anyone ministers, if if anyone ministers, let him do it as with his ability, which God supplies. Everybody is supplied with some kind of ability. Now, what I thought was interesting last week. Does anybody like watching football besides me? You know, there's football going on. It's going on this afternoon, three o'clock, six o'clock. So I was watching the games last week and I thought it was interesting. Um, you know, um, there was a guy who had an eye patch. Now, listen, um, who made eye patches famous is this guy. Here's a picture. His name is Tim Tebow. He made eye patches famous because he started at the University of Florida. He started putting scripture lessons on his eye patches. You know, John 3, 16, Romans 8, 38. You know, he had all this. And so people would watch Tim Tebow because he was like a rock star on the football field. And they would, he used it as a ministry tool. So people started looking up scripture lessons. And I thought this was interesting. Just last week when I was watching, I think it was a Philadelphia Eagles player. This is what he had on his eye patch. Just be you. Everybody's been called 
in our own unique way. And we're all unique in the Father's eye to just be you. I, I, I love this, this story. Um, what's interesting is that, what's upon a time? Uh, Jesus, right? Jesus had three years to do his ministry. I, I've always blown away how Jesus could achieve everything he needed to achieve in three years. It's amazing to me how he did it. He, he, he accomplished everything he needed to do it. He did it only in three years. Okay. And, and so, so this is what happened. We know the story is that he gets to Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And by Friday, they kill him. They crucify him. They put him on a ro- old rugged cross. They nail him to the tree. He dies somewhere between like 9 o'clock in the morning, 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And then they put him in the tomb. And three days later, thanks be to God, he comes out of the tomb. Can I amen on that? We call that Easter. Okay, so then after that, he had told, he had told the disciples, that, hey, listen, go back to, um, down to Sea of Galilee and I'll hook up with you. So he goes down to Sea of Galilee. And so guess who he meets? He meets a guy named Peter. And so Peter's out fishing. Jesus is on the seashore. And he says, hey, Pete, this is what I want you to do. Take some fish, bring them over here, and let's have breakfast. Now, listen, Peter doesn't know that he's about to have a come to Jesus with Jesus. So Jesus is about to have the come to Jesus. Okay, so then in this conversation, this is how it all plays out. He, Jesus knows that Peter has denied him not once, not twice, but three times. So this is what Jesus says to Pete. He says, Pete, do you love me? And then Peter says, of course I love you. And then Jesus says, feed my lambs. And then Jesus comes back at him. He says, Pete, do you really love me? And then Pete says, of course I love you, Lord. And then Jesus says, tend my sheep. And then Jesus says to him a third time, Pete, do you really love me? And then Peter says, why do you keep asking me that? Of course I love you. And then Jesus says, feed my sheep. And they go, okay, so you ready? You ready? Peter can't help himself. Peter's his own worst enemy. Peter can't help but stick his foot in his mouth. He should just let it go. But he couldn't. You know what Peter does? Go back and read the story. Peter has the boldness and the audacity to say to Jesus Christ, Jesus, I hear all that, but what about him? And he points to John. And then Jesus has to say to Pete, Peter, basically, mind your own beeswax. Now that is the contemporary Herald's version. Right? But he basically says to Peter, Peter, listen, stay in your lane, man. Don't worry about John. Don't worry about Thomas. Don't worry about Nathaniel. Don't worry about Andrew. Hey, man, you need to focus on what I have asked you to do. Don't worry about anybody else. Focus on what I've asked you to do. And what did Jesus ask him to do? Come follow me. That's what Jesus asked him. Don't worry about anybody else. Just do what I ask you. Ooh. So I close with this thought. Um, I know what you're all saying. It's 1159, land the plane, Harold. I know what you're saying. Okay, so I'm going to land the plane. Y'all still with me? Okay. 
good. All right, so let me close with this story. It's, too, it's a great story. So, um, uh, once upon a time, there's these two guys, true story. Um, one's name was Arthur Breezy, and the other guy's name was Skinner. Matter of fact, I told this story three or four years ago, but it's in this book, uh, Locato's book, and I think it's, it's one of the greatest stories I've read in Locato. Um, and so they were in World War II. Matter of fact, they both went to, they actually went to Mount Carmel High School together in Pennsylvania. Um, they skipped school together. They were play ball together. They were best of friends, these two guys, Skinner and um, Arthur. And so what happened was they... Uh, enrolled um, and they went to war and what um, they were both prisoners of war in the Philippines. Um, Skinner was caught first and then Arthur was caught. And so um, what happened was that um, Arthur evidently found out which camp that Skinner was in and he somehow finagled it one day that he was going by the prisoner war camp and he, he was able to actually have five minutes with his best friend uh, Skinner in this particular prisoner war camp. So he came to the fence and they talked. And so in the midst of the conversation, uh, Arthur had smuggled in and kept, they didn't, the, the Japanese didn't get his class ring. So he um, took the class ring where it was hidden and slipped it to the fence and said to Skinner, now when we saw Skinner, Skinner was about, he weighed about 79 pounds. He was almost dead. Matter of fact, he was in what they call the death ward or the zero ward. And so he basically, he couldn't even, couldn't even believe his eyes. He didn't even realize it was the same, his same friend. He was so emaciated. Um, and so he took the ring and handed it to Skinner and said, Skinner, uh, take this ring. And, and so Skinner says, no man, I can't take the ring. I, I'm, I'm going to die. You might need it. And then Arthur said, take the ring. Take the ring. So he took the ring. And then he said, take the ring and wheel and deal. So he took the ring. He found the kindest of all the guards, the Japanese guards. And he confronted them one day and says, hey, take the ring. And the prisoner guard said, is it valuable? And he says, yes, it's very valuable. And about two or three days later, all of a sudden, you're not going to believe what happened. The prison, the kindest of the guards threw some medicine at his feet. So Skinner took the medicine. Two or three days later, he left some canned meat at his foot of his bed. So he ate the meat. A few days later, he got some clean clothes, put those on. And eventually, after two or three months of this continue to go on, he... Um, he survived. He, he, uh, he was quoted in saying, Skinner said, I think I'm the only person that ever survived getting out of zero ward in the history of the ward. Wow. So fast forward. So they, they finally, the war's over, World War II. We, Americans, you know, we won. And then they go back to Mount Carmel. And one day, as the story goes, Skinner shows up on author's front doorstep with a little box. And he says, here, I got a gift for you. And he says, what's this? He says, open it up. So you open it up and it's a replica of the class ring that was given to him. Matter of fact, here's a picture of it. Here's a picture of that class ring. Wow. And then Skinner says to his best buddy, Arthur, he says, Arthur, I want you to know something. That ring saved my life. And Arthur says, I'm... 
I'm, I was honored to be able to give it to you. And then Skitter turned to Arthur and he said, hey, don't lose that. That cost me 18 bucks. <laughs> I love that. The ring of belief, who does that? I mean, that was the sacrifice, isn't it? On Arthur's behalf, I mean, he could have kept it for himself, but who, who is willing to give away? Don't we all have a ring of belief to share with other people? I mean, once upon a time, was there a story that Jesus told that there was, well, a father had two sons and one squandered all his money on loose living and then, and then he finally was, after he's eating the pig slop, he finally came to his senses and said, at least I'll go back to my dad. And so his dad meets him at the driveway instead of saying, I told you so. You know what his father does as Jesus tells the story? He goes, hey, listen, he turns to the servant and says, hey, go, go get a robe for my son. Go, go get shoes for his feet. Go get a ring. Go get a ring. Slip it on his ring finger and go kill the fatty calf. And by the way, the ring really had, a, had everything to do with designated authority that all of a sudden, it's as if the father, once again, turns over everything back to his son. Like nothing's happened. And, and so, I mean, he, it's like, it's almost like a, the family visa card with a $10,000 limit. This is what he does, right? That's in modern terms. Wow, this is amazing grace. I'll never forget my friend, Margaret Carter, who was 100 years old after I preached a sermon on the prodigal son story one day. This is back in Dunelli about almost 30 years ago when she walked out. She was 100 years old. She walked out and she said, you know what, Harold? I wouldn't have give that kid a dime. She's 100 years old and still had not figured out anything about grace. So here, don't we all have a ringing of belief to give to each other? I think about my father. God rest his soul. Every Friday, I'd have to take a spelling test. And my father would spend all week pounding spelling words into my head. I was terrible at spelling. And he just loved me and he was patient with me and he worked with me every single day and I would be a nervous wreck to go take that spelling test and as I'd walk out the door, guys, my holy witness, my father would say this to me. He'd say, Harold Ray, do your best. When I walked out that door that day, every single Friday for years and years and years, my father was saying, I love you and I'm proud of you and all I want you to do is do your best. Every single time I walked out the door, I felt like I was receiving a ring of belief for my father. When my, fa- my son was struggling with depression and anxiety, you all would beat me and love me and my wife. And you continue to give us a, a ring of belief. When I got run over by a truck, I received thousands and thousands of cards. And each and every one of would be a message of hope and assurance. Just re- received a ring of belief. Oh God. Don't we all need a ring of belief? Can't we all offer each other a ring of belief? Yeah. So Mr. Wesley finally figured it out. Heart strangely wore May 24th, 1738. He didn't have to bail anymore. I started singing a different tune. One of my favorite hymns, I don't know if I mentioned this, it's called Blessed Assurance. It's on page 369 and I'm at the signal. 
Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. It kind of warms my heart today. I mean, it, it warms me from the top of my head to the bottom of my heart, all the way down to my feet are strangely warmed. Amen.